The Pajama Girl case was one of Australia's most sensational murder mysteries, but did the police really get their man in the end? On September the 1st, 1934, just outside Albury on the New South Wales-Victoria border, a young farmer was walking home with his family's new prize bull when he made a gruesome discovery. The partially burnt corpse of a young woman with part of her body stuffed into a ditch. Thus began one of Australia's longest and most sensational murder mysteries. It would be 10 years before the police closed the case. Or did they? Due to the disturbing nature of this content, viewer discretion is advised. If you like your stories full of intrigue, whodunit, and unexplained true horror, then you made it. True Horror Podcast is all that. Pull up your bed covers, turn off the light, and get ready to hear the bizarre, the mortifying, and supernatural tales where you decide if there's truth in what you hear. Linda Agostini was born Florence Linda Platt in Forest Hill, a suburb of southeast London, on the 12th of September 1905. As a teenager, Platt worked at a confectionery shop in Surrey before travelling to New Zealand at the age of 19 after what was rumoured to be a broken romance. Platt remained in New Zealand until 1927 when she moved to Australia to live in Sydney. There she worked at a cinema in the city and lived in a boarding house on Darlinghurst Road in King's Cross where she entertained young attractive men. Platt was a heavy drinker and a jazz age party goer who had difficulty adjusting to stability. Her marriage to Italian-born Antonio Agostini in a Sydney registry office during 1930 was the beginning of an unhappy time that would see the couple leave for Melbourne to remove her from the influence of her Sydney friends. Linda Agostini disappeared in late August 1934. Around the same time, the unidentified pyjama girl was found in Splitters Creek near Albury on the New South Wales side of the border. The victim's body was discovered by a local man named Tom Griffith. Griffith had been leading a prize bull along the side of Howlong Road near Albury when he saw the body in a ditch running under the road and noticed a strong smell of kerosene. Slightly concealed by a hessian grain sack and badly burnt, the body would not have been visible to anybody driving past. The medical examiner found that the badly burnt body had been placed in the hessian bag and a towel had been wrapped around her head which had been savagely caved in. The only clothing was a few scraps of yellow fabric likened to that of silk oriental pyjamas, hence the naming of the body as the pyjama girl. In depression era Australia such clothing was considered luxurious, youthful and bohemian. Despite finding a small-caliber bullet lodged in her throat, the coroner concluded that the terrible injuries to her skull and brain had caused her death. He described her as between the ages of 20 and 30, with a slim build, 
light brown hair and bluish grey eyes. Back at the scene of the discovery, police detected the strong odour of kerosene and a brown oily substance. A witness had seen a fire there in the early hours of August 29, but there had been heavy rain that night which would have extinguished the flames. The police concluded that the woman had been killed elsewhere, most likely on August 28, and her body dumped and burnt at the site. It soon became apparent that the body was of a petite woman in her 20s, but her identity could not be established. The police had no way of identifying the body. Preserved in ice at the Aubrey Morgue, it was viewed by hundreds of people, but no one recognised her. With her face terribly deformed by the injuries to her skull, the photograph the police circulated had to be altered to make her look more lifelike, while the newspapers were only given a sketch. With nothing else to go on, the reporters built elaborate and totally baseless fantasies around her supposed beauty and innocence or lack thereof, her exotic pyjamas and her fiendish murderer. The investigation was closely followed by the press, but week after week there was no news to report, while the police followed every possible lead to identify the body. They even went so far as to track down all the women under 40 who had failed to vote in the federal election on the weekend following the discovery, all to no avail. To assist with the investigation, the police preserved the body in formalin, in a zinc-lined bath and moved it to the University of Sydney, where over the following years it was viewed by hundreds, if not thousands, of people who still could not identify her. It was not until March 1944, ten years after she was discovered, that the police got their man. The Commissioner of the New South Wales Police, William Mackay, together with most of Sydney's most powerful people, frequently dined at Romano's, a fashionable Italian restaurant. He noticed his waiter, Antonio Agostini, who he remembered he'd known before the war. Agostini was looking rather agitated, which made McKay curious, and so he invited Agostini to police headquarters, where he eventually confessed to killing his wife in Melbourne ten years earlier. Antonio Agostini was an Italian immigrant who arrived in Australia in 1927. His marriage to Linda Platt in 1930 was all but romantic. In his long and detailed statement, Agostini told the police that his wife had a drinking problem and it was the main reason why they moved to Melbourne in 1933. However, even after their move, Linda's drinking continued and she had made Antonio's life a misery. One Monday morning, he had woken to find her threatening him with a revolver. A struggle between them resulted in the gun going off and killing Linda. Unable to bear the shame the death would have brought on himself and the Italian community, Agostini had not been able to bring himself to report it to the police. That evening he had put Linda's body in his car and taken a spare can of petrol, had gone for a long drive. When he saw the lights of Aubrey, he turned off the road, stuffed Linda's body under a small bridge, doused it in petrol and set fire to it. Agostini voluntarily returned to Melbourne where an inquest was soon convened. 
despite the identification being contested by Dr. Thomas Benbow, who claimed the body was that of Sydney girl Philomena Morgan, the coroner came to the conclusion that it was indeed the body of Linda Agostini. Antonio Agostini was tried for her murder, but was found guilty of manslaughter instead and sentenced to six years with hard labour. He was released in 1948 after serving less than four years and then deported to Italy where he lived out his life in Sardinia, dying in 1969. Many years later, historian Richard Evans wrote a book, The Pajama Girl Mystery, A True Story of Murder, Obsession and Lies, and he tells of a very different conclusion. His research of Antonio Agostini's occupation concluded that while the official story placed Agostini as a waiter, in truth, Agostina had been working as a waiter for only three weeks when he was arrested. While he had leased the cloakroom at Romano's when he first arrived, he was university educated and spent most of his working life in Australia as a journalist in Sydney and Melbourne. He had worked for a newspaper catered for the Italian immigrant community whose patriotic fascism Agostini shared. It was because of his journalism that, after the outbreak of the Second World War, Agostini was interned in 1940 as an enemy alien. However, during his years in internment, he became disillusioned with the Italian Fascist Party, and in January 1944, his petition for release was granted on the grounds that he no longer posed a threat to Australia. A job was found for him at Romano's. During the trial, the press went to great lengths to portray Agostini as fulfilling all the stereotypes held against Italian immigrants. They would not recognise that he could have had anything but a menial job. Despite the near-perfect English of his police statement, his oral testimony was reported as halting and uneducated. While describing his appearance as dapper and demeanour, as inoffensive, it was believed to be a disguise for his violent temper. And despite the fact that Agostini came from the far north of Italy, they of course hinted that he had mafia connections, proven by the fact that he was supposed to have smuggled the gun that killed his wife into the country. His reputation for violence was based on one conviction for assault back in Italy in 1923. At a time when Italian politics was being played out in the streets, it would be no wonder that a young man with passionate political convictions might find himself caught up in a violent incident. However, in her few letters home, Lyndon never complained that he was violent and neither were there any reports of violence during his time in internment. While Agostini's statement was lengthy and detailed, it was inconsistent with the existing evidence on several points that the police failed to clarify. Agostini stated that Linda died of a bullet wound and said nothing of beating her head in. He called the gun a revolver when it should have been a pistol, a difference Agostini should have known as he would have done military service. He stated that he had turned off the road before he got to Aubrey, but to get to where the body was discovered, he would have had to go through the town of Aubrey. He said he had doused the body in petrol when it was kerosene that the police had detected. He stated the shooting occurred on a Monday morning which would have been August 27, and that he had dumped her body that night, but the fire had been seen in the early hours of August 29. 
It was not until the Melbourne police took him to the house where he said Linda had died that he was asked about her head injuries. He said they had occurred when he dropped her body down the stairs. He was also vague and inconsistent about several important points in his story, such as how he had dropped her, how and when he had wrapped her body, the type of gun he used, and where his car was parked. The physical evidence that supposedly identified the body as Linda Agostini's was also problematic. The pyjama girl had blue eyes while Linda's were brown and she was a small-breasted woman while Linda was large-breasted. Both had slightly deformed ears, but there was no photographic evidence of Linda's to compare. The breakthrough the police claim finally identified the pyjama girl was the discovery, 10 years after her teeth were first examined, of two porcelain fillings which, it was claimed, had fallen out and been missed in the initial investigation. In the original findings, Linda was ruled out because she had more fillings than the pyjama girl. At the inquest, expert witnesses were able to convince the coroner that Linda's brown eyes could have turned blue after death, and that her breasts could have shrunk after being burnt, even though they could give no examples of either event ever having happened before. During the Supreme Court trial, there was much discussion about whether the bullet or the head injuries had been the cause of death. Either way, the most respected experts were adamant that the head injuries could not have been caused accidentally, but must have been the result of several heavy blows. Yet despite this evidence, the prejudice against Agostini as an Italian with Mafia connections, the jury did not convict Agostini of murder, but of manslaughter after a little less than two hours deliberation. Meanwhile, despite being critical of the jury's decision and even though he had concluded that Agostini must have attacked his wife with a heavy object, the judge gave him a sentence much less than the maximum 15 years that was normally imposed. Could this leniency have been shown to Agostini because Linda had been such a bad wife and deserved her fate as the judge suggested, or were other factors at play here? By 1944, the once golden boy New South Wales Police Commissioner William Mackay was mired in scandal and under constant criticism from the press for incompetence in being unable to close a long list of unsolved crimes. At the top of the list was the Pajama Girl mystery, which also brought with it perhaps the greatest thorn in Mackay's side. In 1938, McKay had taken an oversight of the Pajama Girl case, and in 1939, he invited into the investigation Dr. Thomas Benbow, a so-called forensic scientist. Benbow's Atlantis unsubstantiated theories, his incompetence and his antagonism towards them were too much for the police working with him, and they insisted he be taken off the case. Based on the ravings of a destitute alcoholic who later denied she had said such things, Ben Bell had concluded that the pyjama girl was Philomena Morgan, who had been murdered in Aubrey by a member of the Quinn family of local farmers. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, Ben Bell would not rescind and took his case to several influential and sympathetic ears. He also tried to intervene in Agostini's trial. By December 1943, the detectives who had been working the case so far 
had moved on and McKay assigned two new detectives with orders to review the 125 files of possible victims who had been neither traced nor eliminated. Close to the top of the alphabetical list was Agostini Linda. Linda Agostini had come to the New South Wales Police's attention as early as June 1935. George Kempe claimed to have known Linda for seven years, but he had not seen her since January 1934. He believed that the photos of the pyjama girl closely resembled her, which he continued to maintain after seeing the body. However, while this lead was followed up by detectives in Sydney and Melbourne, she had been eliminated from their inquiries. While there was substantial evidence that Linda had disappeared and had not been heard from since August 1934, there were too many physical differences between her and the body to make the identification. None of Linda's other friends or acquaintances who viewed the body or photographs saw any great similarity between them. When he returned to Sydney in 1938, Agostini voluntarily went to the police. He did not recognize the body though as that of his wife, but did give them the name of Linda's dentist. It was the dentist's records which definitively eliminated Linda Agostini as the pyjama girl. Despite this, Linda Agostini's name stayed on the list and in late 1943 or early 1944, her file was opened again. Penciled notes on the file resembled McKay's hand and the dental evidence as being heavily underlined. The evidence whose re-examination by a new dentist began the series of events which led to Agostini's conviction. This raises the question of whether the file was addressed with an open mind and the underlining was to mark Linda as the body so that the case could be closed and McKay would return to his social and business status. Was it merely a coincidence that just as Agostini was being released from internment, new evidence was miraculously emerging that identified the pyjama girl as his missing wife? The conduct of the inquest certainly presents a picture of police determined to make their case at any cost. While a coroner's inquest is meant to be impartial, with the aim of finding the truth, the pyjama girl inquest was conducted along opposing lines, more akin to a trial with the counsel assisting the coroner acting as police prosecutor. All the evidence was presented as Linda Agostini versus Philomena Morgan, or to be more precise, as the police versus Dr. Benbow. No other possible identification was considered and the coroner's reasoning went along the lines that if the pyjama girl was not Philomena Morgan, she must be Linda Agostini, despite, as we have seen, all the evidence to the contrary. At the trial, McKay denied having anything substantial to do with the investigation, but this was far from the truth. The case had been under his personal supervision since 1938. He had personally directed the new investigators on how to proceed and had taken a major role in interviewing witnesses using interrogation methods designed to lead the witnesses to identify the body as Linda's. The body itself was taken out of its bath and made to look more lifelike. Furthermore, although they viewed the body individually, 
The witnesses were all gathered together for the viewing and would have recognized that they all had Linda Agostini in common. It is also known that those who saw the body before George Kempe were unsure if it was Linda, while those that went after him were as sure it was Linda as he was. McKay also testified that he had no knowledge of Agostini's except as an employee at Romano's, but this too is untrue. McKay had always had close connections with the intelligence arm of the New South Wales Police. He was the head of the New South Wales Special Branch, which was in charge of the internment of Italians in 1940, Agostini being among the first to be arrested. Later, McKay was put in charge of the Australian Security Services, and although he had left before he got out, Agostini's last application for release would have crossed his desk. Furthermore, it was not normal procedure to place a former prisoner in a job which would have given him access to highly classified information, such as being a waiter at Romano's might pick up. When questioned on this, the security service could only reply that there had been reasons for this placement they could not divulge. As for Agostini's confession, McKay testified that he had only been with Agostini for 10 minutes before a typist was brought in to record his statement, and that he had said nothing to encourage or coerce Agostini to confess. Agostini's confession was spontaneous after being asked why he seemed so unhappy. However, the time recorded for Agostini's arrival and the time at which his statement was recorded indicate that he had been with McKay for almost an hour before the typist arrived. Meanwhile, Agostini and his defense team maintained that McKay had told Agostini that the pajama girl had definitively been identified as Linda and he was about to be arrested, but if he confessed to accidentally killing his wife, he would get off with a light sentence. If McKay's actual involvement in the case had been revealed to the court, the whole trial would have been aborted and McKay charged with perjury. However, a critical viewing of the case suggests that McKay's interference went even further than what is so evident. Now let's look at all the facts concerning McKay who seems so desperate to close the Pajama Girl case. He first comes to know the name Agostini in the recent past. Here was the perfect patsy. Not only did his wife disappear at the right time, but Agostini is an Italian, a fascist, a man no newspaper would defend. As a released internee, he will be under the close supervision of the police and in no position to decline an invitation to present himself at a police station. With a word in the right ear, McKay can have Agostini released and placed in a job where they can accidentally meet. All McKay needs now is one piece of evidence that can conclusively identify Linda Agostini as the pajama girl. And that is when, all of a sudden, two dental fillings are discovered which have been missed for the last 10 years. McKay brings Agostini into police headquarters. Here is a man with no friends, recently released from imprisonment, in no position to resist or antagonize the police, disheartened and disillusioned by the failure of the country and the political system he had believed in for so long. It would not take much pressure to get a confession out of him, especially if McKay can offer him a deal, a highly illegal and unofficial plea bargain. Look, Tony, one can imagine McKay saying, I know you killed your wife, 
You converse and let me take the pyjama girl off my books and I'll make sure you get off lightly. Okay, mate? As New South Wales Commissioner of Police, McKay's influence evidently spreads as far as the Victoria Police and the Victorian Judiciary. The coroner's assisting counsel is happy to act on behalf of the police. Expert witnesses can be recruited to bamboozle the coroner with nonsense. The trial judge can be persuaded to give a light sentence despite his own convictions. And as for the jury, the brief duration of their deliberation does not even suggest that they are being manoeuvred by an agent of McKay's, but that they are under direct instructions to bring in a manslaughter conviction. Is this going too far? The New South Wales police pursued a new method of detection. Find your man, then make the evidence stick. This led to two convictions for long outstanding murders being later overturned, and who knows how many other miscarriages of justice. Surveying Agostini's history, the investigation concluded that he was fundamentally an honest man and he never denied that he accidentally killed Linda and concealed her body. However, he always renounced the pajama girl was his wife, nor would he confirm that he had taken the body as far as Aubrey. It would seem that the bulk of Agostini's original statement was, in fact, true, and Linda Agostini's body is lying still undiscovered somewhere in central Victoria. Ironically, while McKay's dubious methods for getting a conviction might have had terrible repercussions for others down the line, in Agostini's case, you might say he got what he deserved. Perhaps then justice was done for one dead woman, but what of the other? Who was the pyjama girl? She was definitely not Linda Agostini nor Philomena Morgan. Her remains have been buried in Melbourne, and it is likely that we will never know who she was or who killed her. You know what to do, that five-star review. Or you can swing by YouTube to comment and like. Now, if you want to get more personal and scare me with your tales of horrors, take a ride on the wild side and share them on my subreddit, True Horror Podcast. Until next time, remember that sometimes things you see in the shadows are more than just shadows.